on the first two verses. And there's a reason for that. When the letters were written, they were written to the people. They were written by the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Christ. And they were written in these men's personalities and voices. And so there are things that we see, especially in the writing of Paul, because we have so much, we, we can see their personalities come through. And these letters were intended to be received, and then the people of the area would take those letters, they would read them aloud when they received them, the whole thing at one time. And then the dialogue and the discussion and the teaching, the application of those letters were lifelong. And something that we've done in the last few hundred years is that we've made exposition more of a system rather than a service to the church. In other words, it's very easy, and I've been taught like this, by, like this in some ways in you know, hermeneutical instruction. That's learning how to interpret and teach text. It's just a fancy word that they like to use. But um, in some way, you know, you have this point, and you do this, and you have, the, and, and if you've ever seen some of these guys online, you know, everybody's doing a YouTube channel now. There's people that do over-the-shoulder sermon preparation. And you can watch them read the text and draw and circle and highlight. And, you know, for those of you who were really actively involved in Bible study in the late 80s and the early 90s, you probably remember inductive Bible study. We had 75 different colors, you know, and 19 different shades and even little template sets like an architect or draftsman. And the only thing you could read in your Bible was what was not highlighted, right? That's what stood out. And we can find all these interesting ways, and they may help us in a lot of things, but ultimately, God's word has been promised to us in a way that if we just listen to it and we just hear it in its context, that God himself, God the Spirit, will teach us something, and then we will learn to apply it together in community. And so teaching is both this verse-by-verse -verse exposition, and it's also the whole nugget. And not just the whole nugget of what Peter is writing to the church there, to those suffering saints all over those areas in Asia Minor, but also to us, and Palestine actually is where this was, also to us as it's written for us today that we may hear it in its context, and not just in what Peter has written, but what Peter has continued to write in his second letter, and then in the whole of the New Testament, in relation to the gospel narratives, all four of them, and in relation to the whole of the Old Testament books, which is the promise of God for Christ to his people. And so we see all of these things, and I just want you to know that if, if, you, if you notice a difference in the way I am putting this teaching forward, it is because I'm trying to do the whole, and then as we move into these things, then unpack it little by little. I'm going to do the same thing this morning. I'm going to teach the entirety of verses 1 through 9, and then over the next few months, we will unpack significant things inside of this while we don't lose sight of the whole thing. And we're not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry. There's no wrong way to teach the Bible unless you come outside the Bible to teach it. Unless you fail to teach it. Unless you fail to go, you know what, I missed something. Or I misspoke. Or this is important. And that is one of the reasons why being together is vital. God has promised certain blessings to us that cannot be had. We will not receive them if we're not together in these chairs. I'm going to say that again. God has promised certain blessings, certain gifts, certain empowerment, certain glories, certain graces 
that are only possible if we're sitting together in these chairs. Physically. You just can't understand it unless you're here. And part of that is that as we relate to one another, we relate in such a way that we relate to the Scripture organically, naturally, and then supernaturally, not, hey, did you read First Peter this week? What did you think about the second inflection of chapter 3, verse 1 of that breath? What do you think that breath means? You know, nonsense. We don't need that. That's a hobby horse. Yeah, we, go, <laughs> we just go to sleep. This is boring. But grace and peace be multiplied to you. When we're here together, we then are able to engage in such a way, even briefly, that we're not even aware in our conscience that God is working through His Word for our joy and to the benefit of one another, and we are ministering to each other, and we don't even know we're doing it. That's the beauty of how God works. And I'll give you an example before I get into this text. A year ago, last week, I got online and I said, I've got about five or six minutes of something on my heart. And I, so I live streamed to YouTube and I talked about God's, suffering, God's uh, sovereignty and suffering because of that particular moment in my life. I was suffering greatly. To the point where I don't even know what I was trying to accomplish except to work in my head that which God had shown me through the years, that which I knew because of the scripture, but I was not able to functionally apply it to my life because I could not find it. You ever been there? And I spoke to the camera, and after it was all said and done, it was 22 minutes, and I put it out there, and okay, got a few looks and likes and never thought anything else about it. That's sort of how I do. And last week, a sister in the Lord sent me a message that said, I've gotten bad news, bad news from the doctor with a 15% chance of success. And I'm not upset about it. And I thought I was in shock, but I realize now it's because of what you said in this video. I'm like, I don't remember doing that video. So I listened to my own voice. And it's uncanny when you hear your voice being used by God, not only prophetically a year before, but to minister to you that very moment. That's what we get when we're together in the, in the, with the saints. And if you want that, you can't make it happen. You can't make someone love you like that. You can't finagle it. You can't romance it. You can't entice it. You can't extort it. You have to be present. You have to be present physically and you have to be present emotionally and you have to be present when you're not able to be present mentally and spiritually. Just a simple discipline. And for me as a pastor shepherd of over a quarter century now, I've realized for the first time that I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know that God knows what he's doing. So if I'm faithful to what God has promised, then what's crazy is I don't have to worry about anything else. I literally don't have to. I can be burdened by it. But the burden comes to the feet of Christ and rests like Mary. The flesh that is not led by the Spirit works and works and works and works and works to try to make things happen. The Word of God will do something in you today. The Word of God will do something for you in ways that you can't fathom by being here today. 
And more importantly, he will work through you in the life of someone else. And you're not even going to know that you're doing it. And one day you may wake up and you may look inside your own soul and lay inside your bed and realize that what God has done for, you, for, for others through you, he is doing for you as well. Chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. A doxology. Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired very carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So you heard my little introduction. Now you see that it is not extra biblical. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not trying to manipulate you in certain ways to get what I want to see out of your behavior. I'm showing you what the Bible teaches. That without their knowing, the prophets spoke of things that they never would see in their own flesh during their own lifetimes. And it wasn't even necessarily just for the people of that day. Yes, in a temporary way, just like many of the things that we see in the Old Testament histories and the narratives and the poetries and all of these things, it was for you. What good is my life? What is it for? Why am I going through this? Why am I here? What in the world do I keep on trying for? Because there is somewhere, someone in the world today that God is blessing through you, whether you know it or will ever know it. And you might say, well, I don't even see people. Are you praying for them? I had a brother tell me a couple of weeks ago, that he and his wife labored in the floor in tears praying for our household. They just felt called upon the Lord to just pray for us. And they were so caught by the Spirit that they wept. And I'm thinking, you know, last week was a really good week <laughs> inside this old noggin. Perceptions change when people pray for you. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
When we pray for others, their minds are transformed. And all they think is that I'm having a better day. Must have got some sleep. It's not about us. It's not about what we do and how we work and, and how we mold and model. My entire life has so many things that I've always done that I thought were just innate to my character, but they're actually habits of construction. Habits of things that I wanted to manifest in the lives of those around me. And I was none the wiser to know that they were worthless. You do it as a parent. You do it as a spouse. You do it as an employee. You do it as an employer. You do it. <laughs> we do it. We're taught to be careful, to word it in such a way. And I'm not saying we don't learn good communication skills and that we are not, you know, we learn to respond rather than react and some things of that nature. But I'm going to tell you right now, beloved, it is something. There is a huge difference than thinking that the way we do something is going to cause the greatest effect versus what God can do. And when we spend more time worrying about how we are going to affect the outcome of what we are going to say or what we're going to do, we are not resting in the, prop, in the, in the proper place. I'm not saying we're not mindful of that. Be mindful of these things. What's that mean? It's a buzzword now. Mindfulness. <laughs> Be aware. Just don't, just don't walk in a numbness. Have a conscious awareness of what's happening, of what you're saying, or what you're, of what you're thinking, and of what you're feeling. This is a command of the Lord. To be mindful, to renew our minds, to pay attention. As the scripture would say, to arrest every thought, hold every thought captive. And put on the glasses, the filter of the gospel. And filter that which we think and want and do and perceive through that lens. It's been joked with me that, I'm, that I sound a little Pentecostal. I'm okay with that. Because there is a supernatural sense in which most Christians never live. And God is supernatural. The Spirit is supernatural. Jesus Christ is both natural and supernatural. He became the natural. He took on the natural. Paul in Ephesians talks about, that's why when I teach Ephesians, I always start out my introduction with Ephesians 6 and the spiritual warfare of it. I get to the end because it takes us so long to read the letter in whole, that we'll be bound up and have an entire structure and system of how we're going to apply everything we learn without the knowledge of knowing that we're not going to be able to do it because we're in a war that we cannot see and we're in a battle that we cannot win and we're fighting an enemy that is not with us. And the victory is ours already in Christ, you see. But it's not a uh, boogery mojo type situation it is literally being able to rest the disposition of repentance is having a mind that is changed that knows that not only is our salvation effectual and solid in the person of Christ and his work but the outcome of our daily lives everything whether we have hair that goes down the drain or whether the sparrows outside fall or whether we're sleeping five hours or one hour or whether we're worried about things that we can't name or we know what's on our mind, God is near and he is ministering to our needs even when we feel and in all, for all intents and purposes we can see that he's nowhere to be found. But Peter has something to say about that. 
Let's look at it. The whole section there, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's just a doxology. It's just a praise. It's just, a, it's just one of these things. Blessed be God. I mean, how often, how often is that on our minds? How much more is it on our lips? And I don't mean like walking around just saying, blessed be the Lord. I mean, you know, we have so many cliches in our culture that we don't even know what's sincere. I, I roll my eyes sometimes, proverbially, when people, you know, the Lord is good type thing, you know. God bless you. I mean, it's just like when people sneeze. I mean, that's what we've relegated the blessedness of God to. Cliché. But my cynicism doesn't erase the reality that God is blessed. And my attitude and my bitterness, whatever it may be, whatever season of my life, or my ill attitude towards spiritual things, has no bearing on God's awesomeness. Has no bearing on God's love for me. He doesn't love me less because I refuse to actually see the spirituality in every aspect of life. He's not sitting there going, well, you know, I tried to show you I was a blessing, but oh well, better luck's next time. That doesn't work that way. God is actively loving us and holding us and embracing us this very moment. No matter what you're experiencing, no matter how spiritually dead you might feel inside, you are alive in Christ. What's the, what's the thing? What, did, what did Peter write right before he said this? May grace and peace be multiplied to you because of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ in whom you find obedience to love one another and to love God because you've been set apart and regenerated by the Spirit. You've been justified by the Father because He has known you from the beginning. He has loved you before you were. Before the world began, you were His and no matter where you are in all of these cities, no matter how you're suffering, no matter the fact that you've lost everything and everyone dear to you, you are God's elect. You are something. You are special. You are an amazing adopted child. Eyes ah, is itching like crazy. So that's how Peter can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so much there. And, and, and next week, I'm going to start to unpack some of those amazing depths. So what is it that Peter's getting at? We know the suffering. We know what's happening here in all of these areas. We know what is happening to these people who their entire life thought that they were elect by bloodline. That they were special. And then they came to realize through the gospel that not only was that not what made them special, that everything that they thought was special about all of their liturgy, all of their spirituality, all of the way they walked, thought, taught, prayed, and acted was not special at all. It was just a sign and a symbol of a, of a, a temporary picture of an amazing reality, of a, of, a, of a microcosmic kingdom that was not of this world. And so Peter's like, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why he can say such a thing. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now let's just stop for a second. I mean, when we praise God, bless you, Lord, you're so amazing. Thank you, Father. You're awesome. What is the typical response? What is that response typically from? What's the catalyst for such things? It's usually because we had something going wrong and then that thing turned to something going right. Right? I mean, I read in my journals a lot and I, sometimes I'll, I just cry and pray to the Lord in prayer for Him to ple- and plead with Him about some things. And then sometimes He answers those prayers according to my desires and sometimes He answers those prayers against my desires, but they're all according to His will and for my good. But I don't go back in. I, I notice that I'll go back in sometimes and say, thank you, Father, you answered this prayer. <laughs> but I've never gone, I haven't found it, and I'm not going to go through everything I've ever written to try to find it, but I, I just don't remember a time when I've actually gone back in and journaled about how God answered my prayer by not answering my prayer and thanking Him for it. But I have examples of that. People in my life who have done that. We know it to be true, and we may have been thankful. But it's not so much that we actually roll around and go, I think I need to go write a poem about that. I think I need to go, I mean, look at the Psalms. I mean, thank you, God, for not answering my prayer. Thank you, God, for not, thank you, God, for turning me over to your enemy. I mean, you don't see, you don't see David, right? So we, we don't get poetic. And oftentimes we praise God publicly and in our spirit when things have gone better. But beloved, that's not the context here. Peter and these people are not praising God because things are better. They're praising God because He is better. Because His promises are better. Because His purposes are better. Because Christ is alive. They're praising God because of what He has done. And and that in and of itself is the filter through which we live our lives in the midst of the hardest times. And well, but let me tell you something. I'm saying these words and I'm hearing them in my mind and I've got about four paragraphs ahead I'm, you know, in my brain that I've got to get out before I lose focus. But here's the point that we need to make sure that you understand. I'm not standing, here's a point that I need you to understand. I'm not standing here having perfected this or even applied this in my life correctly. And that needs to be said. I'm not teaching you what I have perfected. I'm teaching you what God has promised. And He's promised it to me too. And no matter the emphasis or the charisma that I may stand before you as an order and, and, and just project the stuff from a, from a pulpit or from a podium, it's not me. It's not the authority that I hold. This is not this classiness of, 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 stru- of stature or stoicism that I have in a spiritual way. I am fighting this battle just like you are. And so was Peter. And if you know Peter, the outcome of Peter's life and ministry, what happened to him? He was crucified as a criminal. (laughs) And the annals of history tell us that Peter was so offended by the fact, and you know Peter's zeal. Remember, we spent the first sermon talking about the zeal of Peter. (laughs) Peter was so offended at the fact that he was going to share in the like death of Christ, he refused it. 
You will not crucify me like Jesus. You will turn me upside down so that I may choke to death, but not like my Lord and Savior. I don't even deserve to hang like he hung. I mean, that's like, and I have no desire whatsoever to be like Peter. He's not my role model. Because <laughs> when the time comes, I know what James is going to do. He's going to fight. I'm not going to lay down. I'm just being honest. The Lord may give us that peace. But I'm not going to stand here and lie. Yeah, I'm just going to take it. Probably not. But it's very unlikely that I'll ever have to even worry about that. As generations before us have never had to worry about that. But this praise... Blessed be the God and Father, according to His great mercy. They're praising God because of His great mercy, His great love, His great kindness, His great patience, His grace. What has He done in this grace? We're alive, but we're not living. Look at what we're suffering. Peter says, yes, but you are alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have a hope. Oh, what hope is it? I'm halfway done through an article to publish this week on goal setting. I've never written an article on goal setting. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, what do I want for today and tomorrow, next week, next year, and for 10 years from now? And I have things that I want to see. And so I'm trying to learn to pivot my thoughts and my desires. Are they what God would want? And even if I can't know that, can I subject them to what God would want? Your will be done, not mine, you see. But when you're in these turmoil, tumultuous time, when you're in this turmoil, when you're in this trial, your hope is gone. Why? Because anguish and grief, it's like one of my children told me yesterday, is sort of like a is love with nowhere to place it. It's affection with no focus. Sometimes you don't know where to land. Where do I point my feet? Where do I, where do I reach my hand? There's nothing there to grab. There's nothing there to walk on. There's, I'm just stuck. I'm here and there's nothing there. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, imagine not having a place to live all of a sudden and being kicked out of everywhere. Those these people. Imagine losing people. Losing a foundation. It's hopeless. It's, and that's okay. It's rational. <laughs> You'd have a well-reasoned mind to look at situations like this and go, this is, fairly, this is fairly hopeless. And that's why Peter changes our focus. Blessed be God and His electing love and His eternal love. That's something you need to understand about that idea. It's eternal. He has caused us because of His mercy, because of His love, not in pity, but in affection. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if we stop there in the midst of that sentence, we go, okay, yes, yeah, so I'll find hope when I die. Okay, great. But it still has the, the stain of the macabre. And the Christian life is not supposed to be spent in suicidal ideation. 
I don't want to die, but when I do, it's going to be great. I mean, that's not, that's not okay. Well, beloved, I've lived there a long time in many different seasons, in many different ways. And I'm sure most of you have too. But Peter reminds us of something. Christ has been raised from the dead. So the efficacy, that means the actual workingness, the power of what God has done through Jesus Christ is affecting a different life. And because of that, it's affecting a different outlook on life. And beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, we have habits that have stopped, that stopped us in our tracks. I started reading a book yesterday on habits. I don't want to get into that because it's sort of neuroscience. But just the same, God created this stuff. And if we do the disciplines that he says to do in the Bible, our brains will recheck. Those ruts inside our brain, they're not real ruts. They're neurological ruts. Water goes to the path of least resistance. Habits are because our brains have wired itself to the path of least resistance. Spiritual disciplines, when we do them, come with not only restoration and healing of the mind, restoration and healing of the body therein, because if our mind is not well, our body is not well, and vice versa, but also the mending of our perspective, the mending of our relationships, the mending of all of these things. That's why we see people who are not even in Christ, who reject the very nature of the sublime, I mean of the divine, and the sublime, all of it, there's a little tongue-in-cheek there, who reject the very nature of God and live in the sublime and it's like, oh, whatever, these naturalists or humanists. But many of them also find freedom in this temporal life from the things that most Christians suffer from because we, who have the power of God, fail to do the disciplines that are required for us to rest because we're trying to make ourselves rest. It's not that way. If your hand is blistered, wear gloves. If your face is red because of it being slapped, stop hitting yourself. We have a living hope. We have a living Savior. We have a living God. God is not far off and He feels that way. He feels that way sometimes so far that we even question whether or not we've been Believing a lie. And the Spirit of God, through His Word, challenges that. And we rest anyway. And that's beautiful. But it's not just about us taking and saying, well, there's hope. Because if our hope is set on successful life or our little painted picture of an outcome, our little picket fence of an outcome, or whatever it is that you think is pure and exciting, we're going we're to be let down. So he says we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and we're born again to this hope. <laughs> I wanted to preach all of this but I don't want to let this pass. We are born again to this hope. It's not about this restoration of this messy mess. Because even when it is restored, right, what happens? I, mean, I always use the story of Lazarus who was brought back from the dead. 
to die again. Job, everything was restored so that he might lose it all again in death. But we're born again. A new creation. Jesus Christ, the new man inside. His righteousness. We will share in his glory. That is the inheritance. That is what we've been given. That is what we've been promised. That is what we've been made to be. And Jesus doesn't say, one day in eternity, when everything's gone and all the stuff has just washed away, then you'll have the picture of happiness and fulfillment. No, he says today. I want you to live in this abundance right now. Now see how scary what I just said is? Because I could take this like the world takes it. And really uber spiritualize abundance. And then snatch it into the sublime of nature. Snatch it into the stupidity of materialism. Snatch it into happiness rather than resting joy. And what I would do if I taught that to you is to take your eyes off the imperishable hope and put it on everything that dies, fades, and rots. And John has something to say about that in the second chapter of his first letter. Do not love the world. Because the world and everything in it is passing away. It's okay to have temporal joys, temporal happiness, temporal pleasures. God gave us the things of this world that we may have pleasure in it. God gave us each other that we may have pleasure. God gave us stuff that we may have pleasure. God gave us drink and food and entertainment that we may have pleasure. Unto his name and unto his glory. But it's not forever. What's forever is an eternal hope. An inheritance that is, listen to these identifiers, listen to these adjectives. This inheritance that is imperishable. I mean, it cannot be lost. It cannot be spent. It cannot be overused. It cannot waste away. It cannot rot. It is impossible for what God has promised to be taken away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the promises of God. We cannot run from Him. And He cannot deny us unto Him. For Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, because Christ is alive, our sins are paid for. And if our sins are paid for, God is not angry. There is no wrath. There is no justice. There is no judgment waiting for us at all. It is, we are free to receive the inheritance as children. To receive the glory, to receive the love, to receive the blessing, to receive the peace, to receive the hope. And not as unworthy, but as loved, beloved, blessed children. See yourself through the eyes of your Father. Not through the eyes of Christendom. Not through the eyes of theological history. Because it is severely wanting, in my opinion. This is imperishable. It is undefiled. It's not like having a, having a storage container full of incredible grains and going in there only to find the rats have come first. It is undefiled that no one can taint it. Nothing can steal it away. No one can make it impure. No one's going to create a suffering element of our inheritance. 
It is undefiled and it is unfading. It is going nowhere. It is not being reduced. There is no deflation. There is no inflation. There is nothing but absolute riches of glory. And this is us in Christ. And you might say, well, in this world and in this life, it's very difficult for me because it is difficult for me. You don't have to explain why it's difficult. We all know why it's difficult. And I'll tell you something, and I'm saying this, and some of you may say, well, I've told you that. Well, I'm just going to say what I need to say. Please don't say this again. When someone comes to you and they're just sometimes opining in the mire, and I'm still trying to learn this myself because I like to fix everything. I think most of us men are in that context. And there's a little hubris in that that we think we can. And then if we can't, we'll pretend we did, and then it'll fall apart. I thought you fixed this thing. Well, I didn't. <laughs> when someone is <laughs> just sharing, sometimes we just have to let them share. And they don't need the, it's going to be okay. God's going to work it out. Don't worry. You know what don't worry is like? Stop breathing. Stop blinking. Don't go to sleep. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. <laughs> and Peter, you know. All Jesus wanted him to do was to stay awake and to be mindful of his suffering, Jesus' suffering, and intercede on his behalf to the Father. And they couldn't. It was impossible. Because the body cannot stay awake when it's had enough. It's not lazy. It's biology. It's physiologically impossible to stay awake when you have not had enough sleep. There's a point where you will pass out or die. Or lose your mind. Just so you know, you don't sleep enough, you will lose your mind. And you won't have enough mind left to go find the fact that you need to go to bed and get some rest. And I'm not talking about just like bedtime. I mean, just rest. Rest from the labor. Rest from the emotions of it all. Take time out. But it's not in this world, is it? Look at this next line. It's kept in heaven for you. It's kept in the abode of God. It's kept in the presence of God. This is God keeping us. And don't, don't misunderstand this metaphor about an inheritance that's sitting there waiting on us. The inheritance is us in glory. Being with our Father. Being with one another. In celebration of our Father loving us through Christ Jesus. Together, standing with Him, shining in, our glory, in His glory. That's why I think there's a huge necessity to understand the equality of standing of the priesthood of believer in the presence of God the Father as we get over into chapter 3. Even in the imagery of the marriage supper, the Lamb who is Jesus Christ, the God of glory, is serving His people. 
And you might say, well, that's heaven. But look at what heaven is. We are the ones who are the inheritance in Christ. We will not perish. We will not be defiled with sin. And we will not fade away. Because we will be with Christ. That's why verse 5 has a pronoun there. Who? Not that. Not which. Who? Who, by God's power, are being guarded. See, God's power is guarding us for this hope. God's power is guarding us in this promise. But we don't feel it. We don't experience it many times because our focus is on our suffering and Lord have mercy, this is me. Rather than on what God has promised. And that's why I say we're being guarded. That's God guarding. But we're aware of this guarding. How? Through faith. Through faith. And then this reality that we see what we want is salvation not just from the context of the spiritual sense, from the wrath of God, we have that, but we also want salvation from this world. And we have that also. We have that also. Guarded through faith for salvation, which will be revealed, because it is ready to be revealed in the last time, in the last day, in the day of what we have often been told, the day of judgment. But the day of judgment is not for the believer. The day of judgment is a day of glory for the believer. And I know all these eschatological ideologies and all these great seminarians and I respect them and I appreciate them and all that kind of stuff throughout history. And I appreciate the, the systematic way in which they've unpacked every stinking space between every, well there were no spaces in the Greek originals because they didn't have time to write them. But every supposed space in the context of the New Testament writings and have come to a very fine conclusion about what will happen at the day of judgment and what will not happen and who we will be. It does not matter. For there is nothing for you to fear, and there is no condemnation for you. And there is no shame. There is nothing that can be said of you in judgment that will cause you shame. I want you to hear that, beloved. Oh, my Lord, this is not even on my radar. I just popped into my mind. There is nothing in the world that you have ever done, thought, or considered, or seen that will cause you shame at the day of judgment. You will be naked before the Father and before the Son and before every person in creation. You will not be ashamed. Because everything that could ever be brought against you is settled. Everything. Now let that sit for a minute. <sighs> That's power. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. What? Yeah. Don't you feel like breakdancing right now, sort of? If you can, do it. I don't care. Just don't be loud. In this you rejoice. In this, it is settled. In this, 
space of peace and grace multiplied to me right now in this world where every problem that I had yesterday is still on my plate today and will still be there when I wake up in the morning. But I rejoice in that, not this. For those of you who can't see me, I rejoice in the gospel that I just expounded upon rather than the problems that I oftentimes get entangled with. And you rejoice. And then Peter reminds us again, though now for a little while, for a little while, you know, I mean, when you hear that, what comes to mind? It's always 2 Corinthians for me. It's always 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4. Paul starts to talk about this treasure in jars of clay. To show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but we're not destroyed. We carry in the body the death of Jesus so that we also can manifest the life of Jesus in our bodies. We who are living right now are always being handed over to death, being given over to death for the sake of Christ so that the life of Christ may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord from the dead will also raise Christ, raise us with Christ and bring us into his presence. It is all for your sake. So that as grace continues to reach more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So because of this, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is just like wasting away. Though this life is just, oh, would it ever end? Our inner self is being renewed every single day, after day after day. And this is the text I was getting to. For this light affliction, for this momentary Affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in you, who by God's power are being kept by faith and guarded through faith for this salvation that will be revealed to you in time. Just hold fast, oh dear precious children. And now, though, if necessary, you're going to be grieved by trials. You will. Why? So that God can prove to you, and there's many, many reasons, but we'll break that down as we get to that in the weeks to come. Many, many reasons that this New Testament teaches us that this is necessary and what it does for us and how we identify with the Lord Jesus. And I'll give you a sort of little preview. Have you ever tried to help someone emotionally who has gone through something tragically, but you didn't know how? So all you could do was just sit like a brick wall, dumb, with your mouth agape. Go, oh, I don't know what to say. And then we try to fix it and we make it worse. But then we go through it a few years later and then we go, oh. And then that person comes back and they know exactly what to say to us because they've been there. Beloved, that's one of the many facets of what our suffering does in this life. It blesses others. 
Just like I told you in the beginning with that video that I made a year ago. Had no idea what I was trying to accomplish. Did not even apply it to my life. I just know the despair that I felt with everything that I had experienced and all of the things that I was trying to work through. There was only one thing I knew to do and I thought, well, I'll just share this. And it was a year later where God blessed me through it. And blessed many other people. He did it. But our faith will not perish. That doesn't mean it won't wane. It doesn't mean it won't get hot and melt and run other places. It doesn't mean that our faith is going to be perfect. Because our faith is one of the most imperfect things that ever exists in the salvation experience of this journey on life. That's why Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, listen, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Of course, he cannot deny himself. And we see the narrative in the Gospels. I think it's the centurion or one of the community leaders. Lord, help me. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. In the same breath. So you rejoice in this gospel. You rejoice in this hope. You rejoice in the love of God. You rejoice in the promises of God. You rejoice in the power of God in the midst of these trials, which you are going through, various trials, but they're really short. Understand that. And as we age, you know how fast a year is? You know how fast a decade is in my mind now? It's like, oh my goodness, I'm scared to death of 10 years. Just pew. What's it going to be like 10 years from now? Some of you know, you're shaking your head. Yeah, like a year a day. You've been grieved by various trials. So that, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith. And it's not like we're going to test to see if you believe. No, it's just testing it. Like our children test our patience. Our spouses test our patience. Our jobs test our patience. Our trials test our patience. Our trials put our faith to the test and God proves himself through it we're not proving anything to God he's proving everything to us you should write that down and put it on your forehead so that I can remember to do it to mine even gold as precious as it is when you heat it up enough it dissipates it, it, it destroys it it reconditions that matter to go into a different form and it's no longer gold and that's as far as chemistry is going to go for me. Because gold will perish. But your faith will not. Your hope will not. It cannot. See, your inheritance is imperishable. The love of God is imperishable. The hope of glory is imperishable. Your faith is imperishable. And what will happen at the end of the trial is that you will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, at the revealing of Christ Jesus. This is at the day where we are reconciled fully in glorification. It is also right now as we long and wait. And then it begs the question, doesn't it? Verses 8 and 9 just really just understands the human condition. <sighs> but I can't see Jesus right now. I'm having a hard time looking 
He's not on the earth anymore. It would have been easier. Was it? Was it easier for the disciples? Was it easier for those? I mean, how many hundreds of people followed Christ? How many thousands of people? Look at just what the narratives teach us of the men and women and children who followed after Christ as disciples and did not have hope when they saw Him. But all of a sudden have a greater hope when they didn't see Him. So there we go. Though you have not seen Him. This, this letter was written somewhere around 63, 64, 65. In the common era or A.D., whichever calendar you go by. And so, majority of these people never seen Christ, never heard Him teach. And they've never seen Him. But because, even though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. Why? Because you've been given the Spirit of God. You've been shown the love of God and His electing love, His eternal knowledge of you. The sanctification of the Spirit. So obedience to Christ and love for the sprinkling of His blood. You have been made right. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You have been granted this change of mind to believe even when it's unbelievable. Even when you can't believe, you still rest without the cognitive processes of working through the, the understanding of what's been happening in your head. You're just resting and you oftentimes can't even express it. And in that you have joy. You don't see Him now, but you believe in Him. And in that belief, in that faith, in that hope, you rejoice. And sometimes we say, but I'm not able to rejoice. It's okay, you're still rejoicing. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, that's supernatural. It's beyond the world. It's beyond logic. It's beyond reason. Reason. It's beyond everything that we could ever fathom to work on in, in a functional way in this world, whether it be psychological or biological. We cannot fathom that. And beloved, sometimes that joy is inexpressible. It doesn't come out as happiness. It comes out as settledness, but it stays inside. And I think I said this last week just as a, a, like a pre-runner to today. is that it's okay to have an expressible joy. As Trey said it some, almost a year ago, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay. And everything that is, beloved, we have to learn to say it's okay. And we have to learn to say, I'm okay and where I am. Because God's got me. And there's a joy in there that settles us with, filled with glory. What is glory? Seeing God for all that He is. Knowing Him for everything that He is. And being with Him in everything that He's promised. Just to name a few. And sometimes that joy is inexpressible because we just can't find the words to say it. Where is it with you? Beloved, be settled in this. This text is power for you. These promises are not an option. These aren't things you have to grab hold of. These aren't opportunities that God has set out before the table this morning for you to come up and take. There is no response necessary. 
God is not sending out this joy with an RSVP attached. Because sometimes we say no. I know I do. No. I don't want to hear the promise. I don't want to see the promise. I don't want to think of the promise. I don't want to hear from the Lord. I don't want to hear His Word. I don't want to pray. I don't want anything to do with His people. <laughs> Be honest about it. Stop posturing like we're some... I mean, Moses, Peter, the rest of them, they all had the same attitude. No. I don't want to hear it. But thank God His promises are not for our taking. They're given to us. But our joy, oh, the settledness of our spirit is ours in the Spirit, ours in Christ. But how, we, how is our faith strengthened in that? Through the hearing of the Word together. Through the taking of the Lord's table together. Through praying and singing And through ministering, when we're able, as we're able, God will bring us to this place. And beloved, what we think we have had and what we oftentimes wish we still had is nothing in comparison to what we do have that we can't see yet in Christ, even in this life. We need to stop trying to make things like they were and just embrace the fact that God has promised a better tomorrow even if the circumstances don't seem possible. Because we have our hope in the hope of glory. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for just the privilege of hearing your word. And Lord, I thank you for humility that even when we find it, we get a little arrogant about it. But Lord, it's not about us and how we navigate these things that make much of a difference anyway. It's what you've done in us. It's what you're doing for us. It's how you're working through us. So Lord, as we take the table, as we remember Christ, we also need to remember each other. And as you've told us in your word that we can't serve you without serving others. And we can't serve the world without serving our employer. And we can't serve our employer without serving our spouse and our children. And we can't serve the church without truly being a servant in our homes. So, Lord, let us start with ourselves. As was said last week in the teaching, Father, serve the one you're with. Love the one that is with you and before you. That's how we know what you want from us is who's with us. And so we thank you for that encouragement. And we thank you for Christ. In his name we pray.